I've run in my life two full marathons. First time I ran a full marathon, I was just a few weeks shy of turning 34 years old. At a key point in my preparation, I mean at the most critical runs lengthwise, uh, my doctor said, hey, guess what, Derek? Um, there's a chance you either have the worst kind of hepatitis or liver cancer. And I thought, well, maybe I won't run right now. And they did ultrasounds and blood work, saw a specialist, and he said, no, you don't have that. You're just weird. And so that's true. I mean, I have a weird liver is what we discovered after a lot of money. Um, and if you ever see me in the, in the winter months looking like I have a healthy tan, it's just almost jaundice. So don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Um, but because I missed that really key period of time, I... Uh, I wasn't ready like I needed to be, but I thought, you know what, I'm young. I can do this. Turns out you have to get ready for a marathon to run one. And so uh, it didn't go like I hoped it would. It was awful. And I thought, well, I want to try to do that again one of these days. And I chose to, to run my second when I was just a few weeks shy of 52 years old. And so I, I did all of my training. I didn't have anything interrupted, no cancer scares or anything like that. Everything was going really, really great. Turns out, though, I'm a middle-aged man. And, and so for the last six miles, I had what we might call a religious experience. And there was an ongoing conversation with Jesus. Jesus, I'll never do this again. Jesus, help me finish this. Jesus, it's fine if you kill me. I mean, it was all of that kind of stuff, and it got to where, frankly, I just didn't think I was going to be able to finish. It was really getting rough. But then I began to think of something. I began to think about what it was going to be like when I finished. You know, and my family was going to get there, be there, and, and I was going to have one of those cool participation trophy medals, you know, that you get, and, and I was going to get a cool shirt that I could wear around and say, yeah, I ran it, you know. And we were going to go to Garozo's that night. And so I thought, I'm just going to keep going. The finish line is going to be worth it. I'm just going to keep going. And uh, for people of a certain age, you'll get this. I look like Tim Conway when I was getting across the line. But, but I finished it. I finished it. And the finish was absolutely worth it. The reason I share that with you today is because the book of Revelation essentially functions as don't lose sight of the finish. It lets a beleaguered church know life's rough and it's going to get worse. And you may get to a point where it's just hard to put one foot in front of another. But you keep moving because the finish line is going to be worth it. And the finish line mentality of the book probably is strongest in the passage that we will be looking at today. Revelation chapter 14 We'll look at verses 6 through 20. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning? Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion 
of her sexual immorality, which if you were here last week, these kinds of terms in Revelation in all likelihood pointing to the idea of idolatry. That's how the Old Testament prophets referred to idolatry as sexual immorality, being unfaithful to God. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of Jesus of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. Then I looked, behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out from the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress was trodden outside the city, a reference in all likelihood to Jerusalem. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, if you've been here through our study of Revelation, particularly since the first of the year when we have been dealing with the part of Revelation that most people want to study when you're studying the book, verse chapter 4 forward, you may be wondering, why aren't we taking a bigger bite of it? We have for the past few weeks taken big bites of the book of Revelation as we have gone through it. And the answer for it is, while in verses we may be taking a big bite, uh, last week's passage, chapters 12, 13, the first part of chapter 14, dealt with three visions. And we are looking today, when we uh, get to the passage I just read, at three visions as well. So uh, the, the reason that we're taking such a, a shorter bite of this is because the same amount of visions are shared. It's just that one had more detail than the other. Now, the springboard for the three visions we are looking at today, and really some people debate whether there are two visions and another vision with two parts, so either 2.5 or 3 visions, the vision that drives it is the triumphant vision of the church that John gave earlier in the book of Revelation, a picture of the church sealed and protected by God in the midst of tribulation that was being unleashed on the earth at the time and looking ahead to the tribulation that will come and the church being sealed and protected in the midst of that as well. We will not, because we are God's, experience his wrath against sin because Christ has received all the wrath we deserve 
for our sin. But that does not mean that we will not experience the wrath of a world who cannot lash out physically at a God who is spirit. And instead, to take out their anger, they will look at the people called by his name. That is clear in Revelation 12 and 13, where we see the spiritual warfare that will manifest itself as history unravels in a government and a religious establishment in collusion with one another to attack and eradicate the church during history's end. The time will come and it will be unlike any believers have ever experienced. But lest they give up, lest they get to a point where they do not feel that they can put one foot in front of another, God gives us them this passage of scripture and tells those Christians who will be and those Christians who are now that you can finish in spite of opposition against your obedience if you will remember three things. First, endure. Remember God's coming victory. Endure in light of God's coming victory. Remember God's coming victory. Now, we study these texts, our, our staff does, collectively together. I don't know if you know that or not, but anybody who wants to can show up and we spend a time, a group of us, studying through our, our assigned chapter or verses for the day. And I missed something on my own study that in our group this particular day of Dr. Tracy, Kevin Pragel, and Pastor Micah Hayes over at the Ridgeview campus were able to bring to my attention. And it highlights for us the danger of making assumptions that you already know everything there is to know about a particular passage of Scripture or you already know everything that every word means. There was one word that was being shaded differently that I had overlooked, and they brought it out. It is the word gospel. Now, when you and I hear the word gospel, we will naturally think of it as a call to salvation in Jesus Christ. And in that way, we refer to it not as a gospel, but the gospel. When I share the gospel with someone, I am telling them how they can be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But John says that the first angel uses the word gospel differently. He calls it a or an eternal gospel. And in doing so, he is bringing out a more common usage of the word gospel. For us, it has spiritual religious meaning, but in John's language, the word gospel simply meant good news. And as it relates to the context of these verses, that good news could be the pronouncement of victory by a king, a king going against a warring country, a king going against a warring party, pronouncing, I have won. That which has been opposed to me has been defeated. And using it in that way, there's a knife's edge to what this angel is pronouncing. To those of us who know Jesus as Savior, to hear the pronouncement of good news, the king has won, is a yay God moment. But if you have not received that Jesus as your Savior, this is an oh me moment. It is a pronouncement of your judgment. It is a pronouncement of your doom. It is an announcement that because you have rejected the salvation that Jesus 
provides, you will now experience the full consequences. The idea of the gospel being a victory announcement is actually carried over in the rest of that early section in the pronouncement by the second angel that Babylon has fallen. Now, it's important to understand Babylon doesn't represent the ancient city in Persia. It's not referencing a, a physical city. In Revelation, Babylon is used to represent a world order that is in opposition to God, not a physical city. Now, it's very likely that, that John would have heard that and interpreted that imagery in light of his world. That's what people tend to do. And in his world, there was a city that represented a world order in opposition to God, a, a world order opposed to God. It was the city of Rome. But here's what we can take and look ahead to expect. As we hear this pronouncement, Babylon is fallen, we can project ahead that there will come a time when the world order opposed to God will fall. It will likely be personified by a singular government or a singular person. And when the time comes, this singular government, this singular person representing opposition to God globally, worldwide, will have his defeat pronounced. Because the rebellion against God doesn't result in a win for anyone. It results in their ultimate defeat. The third angel underscores that truth. Look again at verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will... Drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. There's... There's something we must not miss in those words. It's easy for us when we hear the pronouncement of the defeat of a world, of a kingdom in opposition to God's kingdom to go yay. But let us never forget in the defeat of any kingdom, there's a personal price to be paid by people in the kingdom. In our minds, when we're trying to process the horrors of war, we actually generalize it. We make it more generic. Our country against that country. Our country defeated that country. That country continues to exist. And we can kind of set aside that there's a horrible personal cost to war. That there are individuals who die. And, and so what God is reminding us here in these verses is that there will be an individual personal price to pay by those who have made a conscious choice to join the rebellion against a holy God, to join the rebellion against the king of kings. No one, no one, and we'll get there in a little, in a little bit, no one will get off. There is a choice that every human being who has ever lived is going to have to make, either to follow Christ or to reject Christ. And the price of that rejection is what we have just read together. So we ought never to cheer 
someone's personal judgment any more than, than we would want to cheer our own. But these verses also do remind us that there will come a day when those of us who have given our lives to Christ will hear that announcement of victory and that, verse 12, is our call for endurance. The, the victory's been won. The finish line's worth it. Just keep being faithful because God's victory is coming. And then next, these verses tell us to endure in light of God's coming vindication. It's coming vindication. I will not read verses 14 through 16, but you have them there in front of you. It may kind of help you to keep them close as I kind of give you a summary of what is taking place here. Verse 14, we see one seated on a cloud with a golden crown and a sharp sickle. We are to interpret that image as Christ. This is an image, a symbol, a picture of Christ. The sickle is an implement used in harvest. Just out of curiosity, any you city slickers here ever use a sickle? I mean like a two-handed sickle. The whole deal? There you go. All right. Country people here unite. I've done it. I've done it. All right. I mean, I've not done it to harvest anything. I've done it to weed whack before, you know, we had the thing. So anyway, you get the idea. You get the idea. It is, it is, a, it is a sweeping motion which takes the, the head from the crop. And here it is meant to be a metaphor for judgment. Harvest is a metaphor for judgment. So the picture being given to us is that Christ is standing ready to judge the world now. Christ is standing ready to judge the world now. Then verse 15 tells us that an angel flies from the sanctuary, which in the Jewish mind that framed John's worldview would have represented the throne room of God. The mercy seat, the lid to the Ark of Covenant, represented the throne of God on earth. And so for an angel to fly from this area would have been to fly from the presence of God. And he has a message from God. It's time to harvest. It's time to judge the world. Remember that Christ in his only extended teaching on the end times as the direct response to his disciples asking about the end times gave a teaching called the Olivet Discourse recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in that, he says no one knows when that message is going to come. No one does. I don't even know. So what we see in verse 15, is the fulfillment of that which Christ said he didn't know in the Olivet Discourse. God says, son, you're ready to harvest. Now's the time. And verse 16 is the beginning of that harvest. Now let's step back even further. And let me remind you of how I see a broad overview of the book. I believe that the visions of Revelation are rooted in the Olivet Discourse. I believe the Olivet Discourse speaks to three distinct periods of time. The Christian history leading up to the end, the time of tribulation that will occur at the very end, and then the return of Christ. And I also believe that those same three periods of time are covered in Revelation chapter 4 forward in three separate visions that give structure to that part of the book. The seven seals representing Christian history up to now and into the future leading up to the end, the seven trumpets 
dealing with that time of final tribulation at the end, and then the seven bowls representing the return of Christ and judgment of the earth. Now, there's also some substructure in there, and you may have noticed it as we have gone through the book. Between the breaking of the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there is an interlude. Between the sounding of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, there is an interlude. And these interludes, which you see when there's a break in the action from these sevens in the book of Revelation, are best understood as kind of, let's go back and look at that period of time, which we viewed at 30,000 feet, in a little more detail. And in that detail, we learn the same thing. We learn in, for instance, the interlude between the breaking of the sixth seal and the seventh seal that God has provided for his church throughout history from final annihilation and final persecution in himself. And between the blowing of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, we see a picture of God's provision and protection of the church from annihilation and final persecution during the time of tribulation so that they can continue their gospel witness. In both of those interludes, we're shown that the church has protection from God to do that which God has called us obediently to do. Now, there's also a pause after the breaking of the seventh seal. There's there's a scene where heaven is quiet for 30 minutes and then just a few verses of interlude or pause. And then there is, of course, a, a time of, of interlude after the sounding of the seventh trumpet, and that is the period of time that we are in today. So when the seventh trumpet sounds, it means that that time of tribulation at the very end has come to a close. So all of that background, let's ask, what are we seeing here? We are seeing in these verses what the announcement of the second coming looks like from the heavenly perspective. We will view it from the perspective of of the earthbound if we are here during that time. But what we see here is a son standing ready to fulfill the Father's will and judge the earth and the message coming to the son that it is time. And when that time comes, it will be in answer to a frequently overlooked prayer that I've alluded to time and time again in, earlier in the book of Revelation. In the breaking of the fifth seal, God's people, enduring hardship and persecution, say, when are you going to do something? God, when are you going to do something? The breaking of the sixth seal. The Father is responding to those prayers. And when we get here, when we get here, God is acting and do you know what God will say to the world essentially with his return for us? I told you you shouldn't have picked on him. Isn't it hard to not say I told you so? I mean, if you're a parent, you don't even try, do you? I mean, those of you who are parents, you don't even try. You take it as a badge of honor. This is what being a parent is, saying I told you so. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. That's how it went in the lynch home. But we don't have to do that when it comes to explaining our allegiance to Christ. Because at the return of Christ, 
He says, I told you so. That's the vindication. His return vindicates your allegiance to Christ, to the world. And then one last thing. Endure in light of God's coming justice. Now, again, we've already read these verses. I'm not going to, to read them to you. Verses 17 through 20 paint as graphic a picture as there is in Revelation and maybe even in the Bible. And there are a good many who study this book that take this quite literally. But just so we are on the same page here, let's run through some rather macabre math for just a moment. I looked this up because I'm a weirdo. The typical human body contains six quarts of blood. So, if you wrung out every drop of blood from every vein and every capillary, you get a gallon and a half of blood. Now, let's look at verse 20 again. And the winepress of this wrath was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So, if this river of blood and it's talked about in verse 20, is just 20 yards wide, which is essentially from where I'm standing to the, to the back of the auditorium. And if it's four feet deep, which is, um, uh, you know, roughly the, the height of a horse's bridle, and it flowed for 1,600 stadia, which is 184 miles, it would require the blood to be completely wrung out of about one billion human beings. Now, it says that this takes place outside the city, near the city, and that means Jerusalem. So if we're to take this literally, we're being told that this cataclysmic judgment that takes place outside the city of Jerusalem would require essentially the population of China to be gathered in the, in the suburbs of Jerusalem. My point is I do not think that we are to expect a literal one billion person bloodbath in this verse. I think the imagery is symbolic and the following text confer or the, the rest of the text confirms that I believe. There that there is symbolic imagery in the in the measurements given uh, comes in how they are roughly arrived at or what they could represent. For instance, 1,600 stadia, 184 miles, represents roughly the length from northern Israel, very most northern Israel, to southern Israel. And, and so what could be being given to us here by way of vision is that no part of Israel will escape judgment from north to south for the rejection of Christ. But it's more likely something else. And this required a little more math, and I'm indebted to others because, frankly, I scored right above plant life on my ACT when it came to math. But here it is. 1,600 is the multiplication of two numbers squared. 4 by 4 times 10 by 10. Signifying, in ancient way of reckoning things, the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, west. If that's what is intended, John is likely telling his first century audience that when judgment comes, it will be complete from north to south to east to west. It will be global. And because it will be global and complete, it will be just. The point is that sin has to be atoned for one way or another. 
because God is just. For the Christian sin has been atoned for in the death of Christ. But if you have rejected Christ, sin must be atoned for by your own blood. And six quarts is not going to cut it. Especially when you factor in your sin in the face of God's holiness. This is a bummer. So let me close by pointing out the mercy of this chapter. I kept harping on that in our study. There's mercy here. They say, you are crazy. There's no mercy. I said, there is mercy here. You see, I kept reflecting on the last part of verse 15. The harvest of the earth is ripe. The harvest of the earth is is ripe. And then it occurred to me the harvest doesn't surprise the planter. He knows it's coming. I used to garden. I loved it. I'd still garden if I had the space to do it. And here's what I learned. I was never to be surprised at what happened after I put the seed in the ground. I would plant okra sometime in May. And never once did I go to my little garden plot at the end of June, 1st of July, and go, what? Where did that come from? I always knew it was coming. But I always knew there was a delay between planting and harvesting. When the church to whom Peter was writing in a letter we know as the biblical book of Second Peter was asking him, what has taken God so long? Why is he not returning? Why is Christ not returning for us? Peter said these words in what is known as 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the, the picture of a harvest means that there's still time before the harvest comes. There's still time. Think of okra. <laughs> I really wanted okra at the end of May. But I had to wait until the end of June, the 1st of July. It just, it, just, it just takes it. There's delay until the harvest. And for those who have rejected Christ, family, friends, maybe even you yourself, that delay is merciful. That's what Peter's getting at. The delay between you saying, God, how long until you come get me? And the actual event is not punishment for you, but mercy for everyone else. Seize this moment in light of that delay, that merciful delay, to tell your family and friends about Christ because there's a personal price to pay for rejection of Christ. Seize this moment to repent yourself and give yourself to Christ if you have not already done so because there is a personal price to pay for rejection of Christ. The harvest has not yet come. It is not too late. Give yourself to Him. And for those of us that already know in the meantime, understand that that's that's our victory. That announcement of judgment for the world is our announcement of victory. And you hang on. Be faithful. Because it's going to be really good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.